Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Latin American Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my glowing honor to be in dialogue with Sarah Sarzinski. She is Associate Professor of History at Claremont McKenna College. We will be discussing her newly published book, Revolution in the Terra do Sol, The Cold War in Brazil, published by Stanford University Press 2018. Sarah, it is my humble blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thanks, Ari. It's so great to be able to talk about my book with you. It's such a privilege to have this possibility to to talk more sort of informally about the book that I wrote and had published in 2018. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey and catalyzed the scholar you are today? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I grew up in rural Oregon, rural Southern Oregon, and I grew up in a town where the major industry was logging. Um, So I guess from that matter, like I saw a lot of rural poverty when I grew up. Um, And maybe that sort of also explains why I'm comfortable or I've, I've sought out those types of locations as well to conduct my research in in Latin America. Um, When I graduated from high school, I went to South Africa as a Rotary Exchange student. Wow. Uh, Yeah, it was a great time to be there because it was the year that all apartheid laws laws changed. Um, And there was a lot of activism in the U.S. and in South Africa. But with um, it was also a super informative time for me to learn about race relations, because whereas in the U.S., um, the issues in South Africa were largely explained as as white versus black. Um, In South Africa itself, I learned so much about all of the different ethnic and linguistic groups in South Africa that created a much more complex version of sort of what I understand as race relations, right? You had um, the the English-speaking white population, the Afrikaans-speaking white population. There were um, different Black ethnic groups like the Koza, the Zulu, colored ethnic group, Cape colored and South Asian populations at the time. I think that, you know, what I started to understand in that was that stereotypes and discriminatory discourses and practices informed relations between whites and blacks, as well as among the different ethnic and linguistic groups. Um, and that sort of is a part of my book, Revolution in the Teja du Sol. Um, um, I started to become interested in the Cold War when I was in college and I worked at the University of Oregon. I worked for a group of of Catholic nuns who were bringing Guatemalan refugees into the country. And so I would hang out with the younger kids and um, talk to them in Spanish, which they were trying to learn. 
Uh, and it was a, a really strong way of sort of seeing the effects of the Cold War and U.S. intervention in Latin America. And immediately I became drawn to learning more and more about that. Um, following college, I then went to Chile um, for three years um, and I taught English, uh, the English language there um, at a private English institute. Um and in most of the classes that I taught, I was talking with, I was teaching English with uh, in private lessons. So I was able to talk to people about their experiences during the Chilean military dictatorship. Um, and I had, I heard so many different stories of people who either unabashedly supported Pinochet um, and agreed that that was the only way that Chile could move forward um, after Allende. I talked to people who had been um, forcibly inscripted into the military and had been forced as soldiers to um, kill people, innocent people during who were um, violating curfew. Right. Um, wow. I think, yeah, I think one of my most sort of memorable um discussions I had was with a younger girl. She was a teenager and she talked about her first memory in her life being of seeing um, parents of a friend at a childcare um, uh, institute come to pick up their child, watching a black car, unmarked car drive up and kill them and leave them for death. Wow on the street right so through that experience i really um i really became um you know a strongly politically committed to trying to understand um the politics of us intervention in latin america cold war politics and and how these military dictatorships arose um and the power that they seemed to have um within the countries even well after the time when Pinochet was in power. Um, it was also fascinating to be there at the time because it was when Pinochet was arrested in London and then extradited to Spain. And so the whole city of Santiago erupted into protests with parts of the city, you know, protesting and wanting to have Spain return their grandfather, um, which is what the protesters were, were claiming for, and other parts of the city celebrating wildly that finally Pinochet was going to be tried uh, for crimes against humanity um, in Spain. Um, so so that, um, that led me to study Latin American studies at um, the University of Arizona. Um, and as I started that program, I ha had to take Portuguese language um, as a part of the program. Um, and I had an amazing history professor who worked on Brazil, Bert Berrickman. Um, and the combination of language and history and a, and a fellowship in the summer to study the language in, in Rio de Janeiro um, really brought me into Brazil. Um, I had thought I was going to go on and study Chile. Um, but the more that I learned about Brazil, the more that I realized that there wasn't as much scholarship published on the military dictatorship as there was in Chile. Um, and I also found it to be a country that was so 
large and had so many different uh, different histories, different cultures and people um, that I would knew that I would be fascinated with it for the rest of my life. So um, um, beyond that, I also happen to just really love Brazilian music and culture. I love speaking in Portuguese. Um, and it was an immediate sort of attraction for me to want to learn more about um, what happened in Brazil during the military dictatorship, um, which led me sort of to the topic of of my um, of my book. If you don't want me asking, why do you think it's the case that the history of the Brazilian dictatorship gets less attention than mm. the history of the Chilean dictatorship? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think it has, in part, it has to do with the amount of documentation that exists about the U.S. intervention in Chile. Um, that this type of documentation, um, you can find it, for example, in Peter Kornblu's National Security Archives. It's so well spelled out. And I think that that, um, that is one reason why there was also one dictator, Pinochet, who sort of embodied what it meant to be a Latin American dictator in a very... Uh, in a very, um, with his cape and his uh, posturing, like he really became a figure that could sort of speak to many of the horrors that took place in Latin American military dictatorships during that time period. Um, and so, I, and, and, and I would say, you know, another reason perhaps is that Chile um, was always thought of as this beacon of democracy and um, a more perhaps European country where this type of thing could never happen. It was the closest to going toward a socialist experiment than any country um, in the Southern Cone. And so when the dictatorship happened, it attracted a lot more attention as well from scholars around the world, as well as activists around the world. Um, the Brazilian military dictatorship, I think, when it happened, it was earlier. So it was 1964 versus 1973. And I don't think a lot of people really knew what exactly was happening. I think both in Brazil and outside of Brazil, the initial reaction was, okay, there's been a military coup, but uh, we're not sure this is the worst thing to happen. It ha the many of the more um uh, restrictive and repressive repressive measures throughout Brazil didn't start to take place until really 1967-1968, and so a lot of people weren't in in Brazil and outside of Brazil weren't aware of that. And one place where that was strikingly different was in northeastern Brazil, which immediately felt the violence of the dictatorship um, with the repression of these rural social movements. Again, another reason why it was a question for me that I was really interested to learn more about and allow people to sort of in on that, um, on that story. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, one of the one of the messages um, was to came from one of the messages that I hope to um, uh, that I hoped will come out of this book was uh, to sort of unpack the discriminatory languages and practices in Brazil that are so culturally entrenched um, that Brazilians 
Um, even today, I feel comfortable and confident as describing Nordish Chinos or people from northeastern Brazil, northeastern region of Brazil, in in very um, in very racist ways, backwards, violent, lazy, fanatical, right? Um, and in a whole other realm of de- of othering descriptors based in being less than Brazilian um, or the status quo Brazilian. So the 1950s and 60s seemed and was a critical historical period because rural social movements were challenging these discriminatory social and political structures, namely the right to own land um, and the right to vote. Um, So on the one hand, the book builds on the scholarship about rural social movements in the region in the 1950s and 60s that were known as the Ligas Camponeses or the Peasant Leagues. The Catholic Church Federation of Rural Workers and the Brazilian Communist Party Rural Syndicates. Most of the scholarship on the topic has been produced by non-historians, by political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists. So I think one of the my book's contributions to the historiography has been to examine the rural social movements from a historical perspective. Um, meaning investigating the historical context that allowed these movements to emerge, to proliferate, to face significant challenges, and ultimately to cease to exist after the 1964 military coup. Because this was the Cold War, um, the context uh, had to also include the international events and circumstances that were taking place during this time period. Um, For a very brief period, The Northeastern region received an enormous amount of attention from the United States media and the U.S. government as it was seen as the next place where a Cuban-style revolution was apt to occur. Um, U.S. cold warriors wanted to prevent this from happening at all costs. So what this meant is that the first sort of USAID funds were allocated to Northeastern Brazil in 1961. Many um, many U.S. experts and officials came to the region, including Edward Kennedy, um, to safeguard the region against the threat of communism. Um, And I think another inspiration for the book is sort of rooted in historical method, that's rooted in historical methodologies, was to understand this historical context of the Cold War I also needed to understand the culture of the time period. So what was being communicated in mass culture, such as in films and and, um, other popular culture and media, and also in local cultural production, such as literatura de cordel or popular pamphlet poetry in theater plays um, and in local sort of artistic works. Um, so that was sort of another sort of inspiration to think about this historically um, and from a historical perspective, giving that context. What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell? Yeah, that's a great question, because there really are a number of stories that I'm trying to tell in this book. Um, uh, so um, my book shows the changes in regional, national, and international politics during a key period of the Cold War, the 1950s to the 1960s. Um, I identify particular moments 
um, such as the first court trial um, where rural workers in Pernambuco, in the state of Pernambuco, argued in a state court for their rights to land in 1951. And that led to the first um, land appropriation ever in the region, um, with rural workers winning the legal rights to the land that they worked. It was also the very first time that rural workers ever appeared in a state courtroom. Um, uh, another example of that is the effects that the Cuban Revolution had on U.S. Uh, perceptions of the north of the rural social movements in northeastern Brazil, right? Um, or perhaps uh, the increased turn toward violence that land invasions seemed to create by 1960, late 1963, early 1964, when landowners started um, using their hired thugs and weapons to kill the rebellious um, rural workers who were organizing for land. Um, focusing on a cultural approach to this historical moment meant that it was not so obvious or immediate when cultural changes took place, right? So for example, like when we see a film or read a newspaper article today, we rarely sort of pinpoint the impact that that film had on our perceptions of political or social issues, right? So my methodology was to look at many cultural sources, as many as I could, that could give me sort of a reason to, or a way to understand how common it would have been for people, for Brazilians, um, for people in the Northeast to hear certain ideas or to see certain representations of the Northeastern region or of um, Nordish Chinos, people from the region. So pulling from Stuart Hall's work on, on rep representations, I argue that the circulation and repetition of certain discourses legitimizes and naturalizes um, these representations to be that people believe then is true, right? People start believing that um, in certain ideas once they've seen them repeated a million times. So my goal um, turned into organizing the book thematically to sort of look at the main symbols that I identified as defining this trope of Unordeshi or Northeastern Brazil in the 1950s and 60s and seeing how a variety of um, cultural and political actors use the symbols to gain support for their political projects. Um, and so the chapters follow this sort of thematic organization rather than a chronological one. And I look at the, the symbol of the coronel or the rural political boss and his relationship with his workers or the rural poor. Um, I look at in another chapter, the cangaceiro, who is defined as the Backlands bandit. He's a, um, a figure who's sort of like a type of a Robin Hood, who's often a sadistic guy dressed in leather um, type of figure. And so I look at that also as a symbol of this trope of Unordeshi. Um, I also look at um, slavery and quilombos, quilombolos, um, or maroon society maroons as a way of speaking about um, uh, resistance um, and the and the need um, uh, and the arguments for the right to land. 
Um, and I also look at religious fanaticism, um, particularly in the symbol of a, a large Masonic movement from the end of the 19th century um, known as Canudos. Um, but since the um, symbols and the narratives of Northeastern Brazil drastically changed after the military dictatorship, um, I, I have a second part of my book. So the first part of my book goes from the 1950s to 1964. And then I have two concluding chapters that look at, um, at that analyze oral histories um, to understand how the rural social movements themselves had turned into a symbol of Nordeshi and or Northeastern Brazil and had become a point in which people could also discuss the political struggles that were um, uh, that were um, poignant of the time of the 1980s or the 2000s to think about, um, continue to think about land rights um, and political rights. Who is Father Alipio de Freitas? Why is he a uh, significant figure? Yeah, so um, fa Padre Alip Alipio is a fascinating figure. Um, he was one of the leaders of the Ligas Camponeses. Um, and even though he was a Catholic priest, he was more affiliated with the Ligas Camponeses than the church federations of rural workers, um, which were also a radical um, uh, Catholic movement. Um, but Father Alipio um, got involved with the Ligas Camponeses um, and really um, argued for a very strong sort of socialist message um, within organ the need to organize rural workers um, for the rights to land. So he um he was also from Portugal originally. And so one of the interesting caveats about his um about his uh, relationship to this story is that he was arrested multiple times and the Brazilian um, government um, used the, the Brazilian government used the doctrine of national security to argue for his deportation as a, as a threat to the political um, realm way before the military dictatorship, sort of also showing that like how, how even during the democratic period during in Brazil, that there were very sort of um, authoritarian laws and legal statutes that were being used um, to um, repress um, social activism and social movement leaders such as um, um, Father Alipio. Um, but some of his messages were like, uh, we're using the Bible, but using the Bible in a very radical way to say like, you know, um, you need to go out and fight for you for the land because, um, you know, the the, the that um, you need to be able to fill the the stomachs of your children rather than um, than continue to work as slaves for the large landowners. Can you describe the 1963 shootout at Engenho Australiana 
Yes. Um, and it's pronounced actually in Australiano. So yeah, it's Can you describe? <laughs> where the Portuguese comes in, right? Okay. Um, okay. Ingenio means a sugar plantation. Um, and so this um, shootout took place um, in late 1963. Um, and it was one of these incidents that I was sort of talking about earlier, where the rural, um, rural workers had been organizing and had been using these sort of... Um, um, land invasions as a strategy to argue for the rights to land to, or argue for agrarian reform and radical agrarian reform at that. Um, but what um, what occurred in this particular instance was um, that uh, that the large landowners uh, made a very um, hard and fast decision that they were not going to leave their land and they were going to employ hired thugs that were highly weaponized to um, start to um, fire at the rural workers. So in this particular case, there were 21 um, rural workers who were assassinated. Um, and what's what was what I found particularly troubling about this beyond the loss of life was the way that the media coverage um, portrayed the lifeless bodies um, and talked about this as um, and, and this is again in sort of more of the conservative daily newspapers in Pernambuco, but talked about this invasion as the as describing the um describing the problems that the rural social movements had caused that um that it was the rural social movements that were to blame for this type of violence that had occurred um and in doing so they took the blame away from the large landowners who had used armed violence to um, kill the workers. Um, and so it was also a turning point um, uh, in the Cold War after Kennedy's assassination, where it seemed to be that after this point, there was there was really very little support um, in the regional or national media f in favor of the rural social movements. Um, and this sort of hints at this um, idea that there was already a suspected or planned um, military coup that would then take place at the end of March, um, 1st of April of 1964. Who is Francisco Juliao? Can you tell us about him? Yeah, Francisco Juliao is long considered the leader of the Ligas Camponeses. So he was a lawyer from the state of Pernambuco. Um, and he uh, allegedly became involved in the Ligas Camponeses first by um, working with the communist part, the Brazilian Communist Party leaders. Um, and uh, another story is that other people heard that he was he was a lawyer who is more of a leftist political background, and he was open to hearing the complaints from rural workers so that he would suddenly um, open his doors and every day have um, different rural workers coming into his property and talking about their the abuses that they were facing in their um, living and work um, situations. Um, and so... 
um, he worked organizing strikes, going to the different um, locations of sugar plantations, defunct sugar plantations, um, uh, rural areas uh, where workers had expressed an interest about um, about agitating or about looking for um, a way to struggle for agrarian reform. Um, he organized protests, things like that, from 1955 to 1959. Um, and in 1959, he he was one of three lawyers who led that team of uh, who was a part of a team that led the rural workers of the Ingenio Galilea into um, the state courts um, to argue successfully for the first land appropriation for the rights of land. Um, and so he was a very charismatic figure. He um, he argued that um, he had three tools that he would use to organize people, well, the first being the civil code, um, the second um, being um, uh, the Bible and the third being the uh, literatura di cordel um, or the popular po poetry that would sort of explain and circulate the messages to the rural workers. Um, throughout the period, he became uh, more of a target especially in the U.S. media, for someone who they, the U.S. Um, pointed to as a potential Fidel Castro type of figure. Um, in part, he went to uh, uh, Cuba uh, on a regular basis. Um, he went to the Soviet Union. He also went to China during this period. Um, and so um, he was also sort of putting the target on his back and visiting these places and establishing relationships with those political leaders. Um, but he was um, also elected as a state representative, a state deputy during this time period. So he had some degree of political support, but he was definitely not um, as um, he was not as uh, as uh, politically powerful as um, Miguel Ajais, who was first the Hisifi mayor and later the state governor, who was also very much a, a leftist politician and had his eyes sort of on running for um, president. Um, the 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 thing about Francisco Julial that I also use in my book is to talk um, that after the military coup, he was arrested. Um, he was eventually um, released as a part of the um, political. Well, he went into hiding. He was arrested. Then he was eventually released um, um, as a, a political exchange um, during the dictatorship because of some of the the activism that was taking place um, in in kidnappings of. Um, of ambassadors um, to argue for the need to release political prisoners. Um, and after this, he ended up in um, Cuernavaca, Mexico, um, in Morelos, the state of Morelos, um, where he lived uh, until Brazil entered sort of its the opening up period in the 1980s. Um, and um, when he came back to um, Pernambuco, he also tried to run for political office again, but never never was able to gather the same amount of support um, that he had in the 1960s. Um, 
Um, I think that, you know, his story and his family's story, I, I had also met and interviewed one of his daughters um, who also was another example of a Cold War Latin America story that when her, um, that it, before the military coup took place in Brazil, she was a teenager and she and her brothers and sisters were sent to Cuba. Um, and while they were in Cuba, um, she said that, that Fidel Castro became sort of her surrogate father, that he would come by to pick her up on the way to school sometimes and check in on her. And then um, when she graduated from college, she moved to Chile in 1973, right before um, the coup took place and ended up um, arrested and brought to the national stadium. And um, she was able to escape as a Brazilian from that. Um, but um, again, another story, and she ended up being able to return to Northeastern Brazil and became um, uh, one of the directors of the um, Fundação Joaquim Nabucco, um, um, which was a, a social science research institute in Northeastern Brazil. Um, so I think that, again, like the figures like Francisco Julião um, sort of help give us a, a way to understand both the moment um, of what was occurring, how they um, how they were seen um, locally, nationally, and internationally in very different lights, um, and the sort of um, tragedies that um, that broke their families apart um, after after the military coup and during the dictatorship, and how their lives were almost never able to sort of recover from that as well. What was the Ingenio Galileo? movement. Can you describe its origins, evolution, and legacy? Yeah, that's a great question because there's so much scholarship that's written that has been written on the Ligas Camponeses, both from within the movement and from the at the time period when it was written. And there are lots of different stories about how the Ingenio Galilea um and the um and the SAP or the the Society of of um, agrarian and um, uh, agrarian and um, uh, farm animals labor union started right, um, and so it was it, it's seen as sort of the birthplace of the Ligas Camponeses, and it was the 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 place where the um, again the first land appropriation took place. Um, in um it, after the in 1959 um sort of being seen then as the place that that could be repeated in other and in other ingenues um uh, in my in my field research, I I traveled to the Ingenio Galileo. Um, it's a location that's about two hours from the main city of Recife. Um, that's uh, a, th th there's one bus a day that sort of goes from a more interior town to the Ingenio Galilea. Um, and I wanted to go and see if there were people who had been involved in the Ligas Camponeses who were there, who still live there, um, and talk to them, conduct oral histories if they were willing and able to talk to me about it. 
Uh, and one of the most impressive things that I found there was actually um, a person who is someone that I would consider an autodidactic um, historian, Zito de Galilea. So Zito had been a, a um, a teenager at the time of the military coup. Um, and his grandfather, Zeze de Galilea, um, had been one of the leaders of the Ligas Camponeses um, uh, and from the Ingenio Galilea. Um, but when the military coup took place, um, Zito, um, Zeze was arrested and beaten, um, and Zito fled to Hisifi, where he lived, he said, in hiding for the first few years, and then he went into internal exile in Sao Paulo. Um, and he lived a lot, most of his life in Sao Paulo. He became, um, he became involved in um, the bus drivers union there. Um, and at some point he was trying to get his kids into a private school and walked in and said, you know, like I, I come from this family of activists and like my, my grandfather was the leader of the Ligas Camponeses and we were from the Ingenio Galilea and the, the director of the school started crying and said, I can't believe that I have someone here with me right now. Who's been, who was such an important, um, such an important figure and comes from this family of such an important figure um, in the history of Brazil and immediately um, allowed his children to enter the school for free of charge. Um, and so I think that that like he had he he told a story about his own trajectory sort of as an activist and the way that he felt like he would do the best service to the memory of his family and of the Ligas Camponeses was to create his own museum in on the Ingenio Galilea. So he took me to this um, small, what we would call it a shack. Um, it was, you know, it didn't actually have a floor. Um, I mean, it had a floor, it was a dirt floor, um, but uh, he had a few boxes. He had a few pictures of the Movimento Senteja, um, the MST um, or the Landless Workers Movement. Um, and he had images and collected um, all sorts of ephemera from the from the era of the Ligas Camponeses. Um, he had also gone to um, Rio de Janeiro when Francisco Julião happened to be back in Brazil and had walked up to him and said, "My grandfather was Zezé de Galilea, and I'd like to talk to you." And Francisco Julia immediately embraced him and the two of them um, talked and Zito recorded that. So he had these recordings that he played for me of his interview with Francisco Julia about the Ligas Camponeses. Um, he had also worked with uh, worked to get a monument made to the Ligas Camponeses in on the Ingenio Galilea. Um, but his one of his big sort of sadnesses was that it still was wasn't recognized in the state of Pernambuco as um, as a as a significant movement and political event within state history. Um, 
And so it was his goal to sort of at least hold on to those memories and provide a space to um, to hold those histories. He said, you know, the majority of people who'd come to visit me are people who are coming from other areas um, in the in the Americas, in Europe, um, sometimes from other places, other states in Brazil. But I get very few people who are actually interested in talking to me who are from this region. Can you tell us about Miguel Arias? What is his significance? So Miguel Arias was the mayor of Recife um, and then was elected as governor of Pernambuco during this time period. And he was a charismatic um, leftist socialist leader. Um, he liked to, he, he said, and he was very anti-American. He would carry around, I guess, he liked to smoke marble cigarettes for some reason. And he would carry around his pack of marbles and say, ah, this is the only thing that Americans are good for smoking. Right. So like that, he, he, it was his attitude he was um um he was a labor rights um activist as well and what happens when he's governor is that he um he creates spaces for rural workers um and for sugar um sugar plantation workers to strike and won't allow the um the police to go in and end the strike right so again some of the biggest strikes take place um, while he's um, president, oh, I mean, excuse me, while he's governor. Um, and um, they take place when he's, um, and they allow, um, they allow the, uh, the, the workers to gain rights through striking um, in terms of wage increases, in terms of the normalization of work hours. Um, uh, basically, people who are working in in, um, in the sugar mills who are able to then um, refuse to work for the, the terrible conditions that they've been working under. Um, so during his administration, it's a time also where you see a lot of the, a lot of social activism sort of pro proliferating. What does your research contribute to memory studies? Uh, um, so one of the complications that I faced in this book is that there were a lot of oral histories that have been done with people who are involved in the rural social movements or people who were politicians in the 1960s um, that were conducted in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, both in um, as a part of the uh, Fundação Getúlio Vargas in um, and Cepedoqui in Rio de Janeiro, and also with the Fundação Joaquim Nabucco in Pernambuco. So I came across, you know, actually probably close to a hundred different oral history interviews that were conducted during this time period of the political opening. And they were conducted in a very particular um, political period of arguing um, for democracy to return to Brazil um, and talking about um, uh, creating um creating a space for the history of what had happened in 1964 to be heard really for the first time. Um, uh, but originally I thought that I would 
um, I would also conduct a lot of oral history interviews and I ended up conducting a few, um, focusing mostly on the one that I did with Zito de Galilea. Uh, and what I found in these is that there were really different truths that were being expressed during this time period than the truths that were expressed in the earlier time period. And I couldn't wrap my head around how I would write a story, write a history that would be able to conflate the two. Many, many historians who use oral history as a source are able to do so sort of seamlessly without sort of taking into consideration the the fact of memory or like the the distance that might have taken place um, that, you know, it's just another version of the truth that's taking place at a different time period. But for me, there was because they were produced in such a politicized time period after the mil after as the military dictatorship was waning and there was a fight for the return to democracy, it really was important to separate that as a different part of the book, a different part of the story that um that revealed you know new insights about what the Ligas Camponeses um had been like and and what these rural social movements had been about during the time period, but were not necessarily part of the story that I wanted to incorporate in the in the first section of the book on the 1950s and 60s. Can you explain the importance of Jose Pacheco's poem, The Arrival of Limpiao in Hell? Yeah. Um, so this is a poem, um, Literatura de Cordel is um, a popular pamphlet poetry is how I translate it. Um, and it's sort of um, poetry that sometimes is printed, sometimes is just spoken, um, that's actually geared toward a large, um, a largely illiterate or non-literate audience. Um, so you would often see in Northeastern Brazil at this time period, um, poets um, uh, singing their poetry in public fairs or markets. Um, and then um, people who enjoyed the performance would sometimes buy the the this sort of um cheaply reproduced um poetry that was sort of cut into um folded and then cut into four sections um for it to so that they could um maybe ask someone later to read it to them or perform it for them and in their in their homes um and uh, and so um, one of the ways that one of the complications in using the source is that, A, it was um, largely an oral source and what's reproduced in writing was it may have not been exactly what was expressed um, as a performance, um, but B, that most of these publications lacked any type of publication information. So there was a title and oftentimes an author, um, but that was it, like sometimes a publishing press. Um, and so I had to do a lot of sort of 
detective work within the poetry to see if there was um if there was anything within it that revealed the time period when it was produced so if they were talking about a year or a a, a certain event that had taken place um then i would know that okay this was probably circulating in the 1950s and 60s um another way to do it was that i created sort of a, a database of the authors that i knew were that that i knew were had been publishing things during that time period because their work also um, appeared in the newspapers of the Ligas Camponeses, for example, or the Peasant League's newspaper. Um, and so this particular um, poem um, uh, talks about um, talks about how um, this figure of Lampion, who's the um, who's the the this again sort of um backlands bandit figure right um how um he says uh and the um Lampion, the this backlands bandit arrives at hell's gates and the devil explains why Lampion can't enter so in the poetry poem goes, only bad people come here. I go along hapless. I even have the desire to throw out more than half of those who I have here. Lampion is a bandit, a thief of honesty. He only comes to demoralize my property. Um, and so uh, within this poem, um, the, uh, the, the, the author makes the landowner the devil and he makes the hero, um, uh, the rural worker through the figure of Lampion. Um, and so I use it as a way of sort of suggesting that um, that Lampion could, that the Ligage Camponeses could use the symbol of Lampion to argue for the right to land. Um, and they did so through many of these popular tales that about Lampion, right? And so um, they would also instruct uh, through such stories how rural men needed to um, needed to use their masculinity to rise up and fight for their right to land and fight to protect their women and children from the the landowner who they again would depict as the devil as as someone who is uh coming and to um um to rape their wives um and daughters um to act dishonorably um and that the rural worker um was was an honorable person who had the right to defend himself right and so it was sort of a a figure that was used in that in that way um on the other hand it was also a figure the symbol was also used by people who really opposed the rural social movements to um depict them as sadistic as violent as barbaric um and so you see at the same time a whole number of popular films coming out about Lampion also portraying him at, or the Cangacero in general portraying them as like the bad guy right as the you know like the where uh, there were heroic sort of 
um, um, landowners who had the right to defend their property. Then there were these bad guys coming in and stealing the the landowners' um, wives and children. So sort of doing the same types of things um, to the uh, to the landowners' um, uh, wives and children. Right. So like there's a there's a lot there was a lot of mixed messages that were taking place in this one figure during this time period, depending on who was listening and who was using that figure. Who was Elizabeth Texera? Why is she noteworthy? Yeah. Um, so Elizabeth Texera um, was uh, um, uh, the uh, was the widow of Juan Pedro Teixeira, who was um, one of the victims. Um, uh, was a Ligas Camponesa's leader um, and was um, on his way back to his house um, in the early 60s and was sort of brutally assassinated um, by um, some of the landowners' thugs. Um, and there was a, then a big sort of outpouring of support for her husband, Juan Pedro. And Elizabeth Chitechera then sort of starts taking over his leadership role also in the Ligas Camponeses and starts speaking at events. Um, she has, I think it's 10 children um, and she brings them to the political rallies um, and um, becomes a, a sign and a symbol also of the Ligas Camponeses and how it wasn't only men who were involved in the fight. Um, following, uh, she's also important to this story because um, there's a beautiful documentary that comes out later in the 1980s um, by Eduardo Cochinho um, that tells about the life of Elizabeth Teixeira um, after Juan Pedro's assassination um, and also what happens to her during the military dictatorship. Um, and in some ways, similarly to Francisco Julião, um, she goes into hiding after the after the 1964 coup. Um, she moves to a town in another state and goes by a different name. And her children um, are all sort of sent to different locations um, where there, she has extended family members throughout Brazil, and she loses contact with many of them. Um, and it's not until this sort of opening period in the 1980s when Elizabeth Teixeira is able to reclaim her identity um, and say, yeah, this is my name and this is who I was. Um, and, and this documentary filmmaker goes in and interviews her and inter and brings her children to her from different parts of Brazil, those of whom, or those of the, the children who want to um, um uh, want to start a new relationship with their mom at that point. Um, but we really are, it's um, a window into what happened in the 60s and then the memories of that that are brought up in the 1980s and hearing about the life experiences of of um, a rural social, social movement leader and what happens to her as a result of the coup and the dictatorship. Um, and it's a beautiful, um, beautiful documentary. Um, uh, and it's a point that I analyze actually in the second part of the book as well, really thinking about um, 
also how the filmmaker, while portraying her story, is also in some ways um, objectifying her using also the trope of Unordeshi to portray her um, as uh, a victim, um, as someone uh, who's um, impoverished um, and 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 particularly an impoverished woman, and does so in in ways that are very um, similar to maybe even what we'd see in the in the WPA photographs of Dorothea Lange's photographs in the 1930s, right? Of of poor working class women who are, have weathered skin, and and there's a few points in the documentary that are very uncomfortable because the camera is hidden, and she's asked that them not to be filming her, not to be filming this particular interaction action and it's running and um and they put it in the documentary and so i think it also it's a it's a moment in documentary filmmaking in brazil where we have to also think about like the ethics of filming people who and filming people's experience that even if it's important politically if they don't want to be filmed do we have the right to do that? Do we have the right to put their stories out in in a mass format um, if they're not if they're not explicitly um, aware that they're being filmed and if they have already asked you not to film them? What was Cinema Novo or New Cinema? Can you explain? Ah, so um, um, the Cinema Novo movement arises also at the same time period. And it's um, it's a radical film movement um, in which the directors are um, rejecting the aesthetics of Hollywood and, uh, and rejecting the way that Hollywood has been filming the third world, right? And so they're, that, and that's the way that they're terming this, the third world, right? And so they're saying like, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood paints us as, you know, being poor and happy and dancing around. And what we want to do is portray the reality of the ugliness of what it means to be impoverished in the third world. Right. And so they did so um, oftentimes in the beginning, especially most of the 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 cinema novel directors focused their work on what they considered the most impoverished region of Brazil, of northeastern Brazil. So many of the early films that come out in the 1960s are all focused on the Sertão, on the backlands area, the sort of desert-like scenarios, or the coastal sugarcane plantations. But definitely situated in within northeastern brazil um and so it's um they uh, the these films are not easy to watch um they they all have a strong political message but that's not the reason why they're difficult to watch they often um they often lack a music track um they are often filmed with a um with a handheld camera um, they uh, may or may not use professional actors or a collaboration between some professional actors and um, people who are not actors in their films. Um, the lighting contrasts are often, you know, to the extreme. Um, and they're very slow films that where sometimes there's not a lot of action or dialogue taking place, sometimes filmed out of sequence, um, where the editing choices are very obvious so that you're, again, the audience was not supposed to feel um, 
was not supposed to feel like they were going to a Hollywood movie. They were supposed to feel uncomfortable. They were supposed to go into a theater, watch a cinema novel film and feel enraged, feel ready to go out and um, and make political changes and discuss what they had seen in this film and what was wrong about it, you know? So they were meant, it was a, a political film movement within Brazil that's very important. And from, from my book, it's important because they were, I start off talking and the, and the title of the book alludes to um, one of the most famous cinema novel films, which is Glauber Rocha's um, Del Cio Diabo na Terra do Sol, or, or um, it translates into English, um, uh, Black God, White Devil. Um, and the, the film is, um, the film talks about or positions rural workers at as first um, going to a messianic movement um, and getting engaged in this messianic movement and then um, leaving that and getting engaged with the cangaceros. Um, and then at the end of the film, they run off and we don't know what their future is going to be, right? Um, and what I use the film to say is that this film was produced at a time when when rural social movements were actually organizing for land and fighting for the right to vote um, and um, and other um, labor rights. And there was no allusion to that. It was all still stuck in these symbols of the past, of the congasero and of the religious fanatic. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, it, it's it's a political film that shows how the 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 rural couple like decide to reject both of those and go off in a different path. Um, but at the same time, there were many other possibilities that felt like it wouldn't be investing in repeating that exact same trope that was that was repetitive. Um, also, the fact that all we see in the cinema nova films are images of drought, of poverty, of exploitation, of violence. Um, these themes are so prevalent in northeastern Brazil, but they can't, they they're 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 stereotypes. They can't really encompass who the people were, what they were fighting for, um, also what uh what other representations there were of northeastern Brazil um that would actually challenge those stereotypes. Um instead they worked from within the stereotypes to express a political message. What new insights does your research reveal about the revolution of 1964. Since many scholars call it the um, the sort of soft dictatorship period from 1964 to 1967, in that there weren't a lot of repressive um, laws that were instated until that point, um, I think I think that's sort of 
I think that's erroneous to say. I think that's because most of the people are writing about other regions of Brazil, like um, Rio and Sao Paulo, where the levels of violence that we see in northeastern Brazil weren't happening. But if you if you include northeastern Brazil as a significant place to understand the history of Brazil, then you recognize that people were being killed, were being arrested, were being tortured, were being disappeared. Um, immediately as of April 1st, um, 1964. Um, one of the Communist Party leaders, Gregorio Bezeja, was stripped naked and dragged um, on a rope behind a horse throughout the town. Um, uh, other leaders were uh, had to go into hiding um, and people who were associated with that had to go into internal exile. Um, so um, it also, the coup legitimized the large landowners to use violence and force against the rural workers who had been rebelling, who had been a part of the rural social movements, um, and to also lock down the law that that was not going to happen again. So I think um, that while we can say that, you know, by the by 1968, when student protests are taking place and there's more and more censorship and people being um, um, and people having to go into exile and being arrested in Brazil, um, it's 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 just not um, it's not historically accurate to leave out what happened in northeastern Brazil in 1964 and talk about the dictatorship as if it were not as um not as repressive or as violent. Can you tell us about Euclides da Cunha? Why is his work Osertoias, or Rebellion in the Backlands, significant? Um, so um, Osertoias tells a narrative about um, religious fanaticism um, in the late 19th century, and it tells of a sort of figure associated with sort of folk Catholicism who leads a group of um, rural workers or a mishmash of people um, to a community and starts um, um, his own community um, that he doesn't see as being in line with the Brazilian nation at the time. And the Brazilian military leads three um, strikes on the community. Um, the third one, which is successful in um, in killing most of the inhabitants. Um, but um, it's a story that is sort of an epic narrative of Brazil um, used to sort of show the strength um, and the resilience of the people from the Northeast, um, but also used as a way to talk about and discuss their, their tendency for religious fanaticism and also for backwardness and violence. Um, and so, I mean, part of the reason why this comes up um, in relation to my book is that um, that many of the uh, both the Ligas Camponeses and the church um, and the um, church federations of rural workers were associated with more of the the Vatican II um, radical Catholicism that was uh, more popular in Latin America at this time. Um, and um, many of the um, conservatives or the large landowners, the, the more conservative politicians who are against the rural social movements um, would use the example of religious fanaticism to um, 
to um, suggest why um, why um, these movements should be um, repressed um, in that the people were following mindlessly, like mindless sheep, these leaders who were preaching to them in um, interpretations of the Bible that they considered very, inc- they've considered incorrect um, to um, to um, gather support for grain reform and for um, uh, rural people's enfranchisement. Um, and, you know, I think it's a, a point where we, where we can actually see um it, it's it's a point where both in popular culture and in um and in the mass media that we can see that they're very effective in using that discourse um to uh against the rural social movements um uh, as a way to sort of um really uh because it's so entrenched in brazilian culture it's such a um it's one it considered one of the sort of epic stories of brazilian history so everyone's familiar with it so the minute you bring that up people automatically sort of have this knee jerk reaction of like oh those mind washed people were like creating this violent situation and the military had to come in and and annihilate the whole community right um and that this is also in some ways what happens with the rural social movements. So you see that same type of symbol, uh, symbolism and narrative being used to describe the, the reasons why it's necessary for the military um, to, uh, to repress the rural social activism. Why is the history of the Brazilian dictatorship during the Cold War relevant in the year 2023 what can it teach Brazilians and non-Brazilians? Um, this is a, a, a challenging question um, because we just uh, went through the Bolsonaro regime, um, which had a lot of, shared a lot of similarities, I would say, to the military dictatorship in Brazil um, in terms of the way, and, and also in terms of the way that it was able to um, create certain popular narratives um, that uh, demonized um, Northeastern Brazil and other parts of Brazil that um, where Bolsonaro did not hold a lot of support. Um, So if we look back to sort of the election results, um, Northeastern Brazil, none of those states voted um, for Bolsonaro. Um, and immediately following the election, he uh, the Bolsonaro regime went into um, a, a discourses of you know why should these people be elected? Why should why should the northeasterners who are who don't have the education levels and um, are um, are are wildly unpredictable why should they have this uh, ability to decide a political result and so sort of a questioning again of of rural enfranchisement and i mean i have to say like it's it, if you were a rural worker in brazil and you were illiterate you pe- people there did not get the right to vote until 1985 um, in part because of the military dictatorship, but also because there were such strong laws against enfranchisement and, a, and, and such a strong prejudice against people uh, who rural people um, and need to control those rural po- or, or perceived need to control the rural populations and the rural vote, that that was that, um, that it's 
at, at an incredibly late date that we see that um, that rural people can actually participate participate politically um, in a formal way. Um, so I think that you know, like along with that. Um, uh, I think that 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 continues that that many of these sort of stereotypes, discriminatory practices um, continue to take place in Brazil today. Um, many of even the communities who are in um, the cities of Rio and Sao Paulo who identify as Nordish Chino are, um, are discriminated against on a regular basis. You see the types of media production that... Um, that uh, often use comedy to talk to um, portray the accent from northeastern Brazil. Um, uh, that the, there's still um, uh, the the idea that Nord people from northeastern Brazil um, are are um, largely only able to be laborers um, or uh, having sort of blue collar. Um, jobs, right? Um, and, you know, I have a number of friends who in Brazil who sort of <laughs> try not to disclose that they're from the Northeastern region in their circles in Sao Paulo and Rio because of, of the fear of discrimination that they'll face within these populations. So I think that it's also something that, um, that, that, we often think of discriminatory practices as taking place between um, whites and blacks. Um, and while that is still prevalent in Brazil, there's also a whole nother um, factor that we have to take into consideration. And that is this sort of regional stereotyping and discriminatory practice that takes place with people from Northeastern Brazil um, and people who perhaps can't hide their identity of being Nordish Chino, um, who continue to have their cultural practices or accent or live in that area. Um, and, and we have to really think about the, the cultural norms that have allowed this to be so legitimized, so um, so much a part of Brazilian society that that few people ever stand up and question that. There are very few, I guess, we could say allies that would say like, that's very discriminatory what you're saying when someone is making a generalized comment uh, uh, that is discriminating against people from Northeastern Brazil. How does your research recontextualize the work of Paulo Freire. Yeah, Paulo Freire. Um, so most people who have um, sort of studied um, uh, um, radical pedagogical approaches have read his like or uses his 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 first book as their handbook, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it's a great book. It's a very interesting read. Um, it, it talks about like the need to contextualize education within people's lived experiences and have them talk and learn from where they're coming from, not preaching at them. Um, but what's interesting about Paulo Freire is that he was developing all of this at the same time as the Ligas Camponeses and the other rural social movements were um, organizing rural workers. And so he was working actually with the Catholic University at that time period and with many of 
the Catholic priests to go in um, at Catholic priests, as well as lay workers to go into these rural communities and start his sort of radical education projects. Um, and so I think that that's like, it's a, it's a part of this story that you see how many, um, a, how many sort of um, really creative and radical ideas were um, existing and were coming out of this era in northeastern Brazil. That was Paulo Freire, that cinema novel, that um, that we have uh, um, leader. We have people from all over the world coming to northeastern Brazil to think about revolution, like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir come to because they think that there's going to be another Cuban revolution there, right? Um, so it, it's sort of this hotbed of ideas, of, of new practices, of, of um, Catholic radicalism, a um, number of the, you know, the, the ideas that are attached to the Vatican too. Um, are are coming from the experiences that the priests who are part of these um, Catholic federations of rural workers are um, are using on their everyday practices of in trying to gain rights for rural workers of recognizing that the church's place is not to hide in the background and speak in Latin um, but to be um, to be present. Um, uh, as um, to be um, present and engaged in helping um, rural workers live, and that their role as priests is to um, is to walk in the in the shoes of of Jesus, right? That they certainly change the mission of what the church should be in these communities to something that's much more of an activist role, um, and as a, a role that turns toward the poor um, instead of only being sort of the arm of the conservative elite or the large landowners. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about your current or ongoing research? Where has your time and attention gone since completing this book? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so I am no longer working in northeastern Brazil, although I have a great um I I I I think that there's so much more that historians can learn and can do there. Um I although I have to say I have a, a slight, a small project that I've been trying to work out that came out of this research that has to do with um uh, a person who was um outed uh um who was outed as a man who was uh, excuse me was outed as a woman who dressed as a man um in the 1950s so i'm sort of interested also in these stories of perhaps histories of people who may have been transgender even before a transgender identity existed um but my larger project um, is has shifted to a slightly different time period and a very different region of Brazil, um, but it but it's still interested in these stories that are coming from um, the people who live in this region. So um, I'm currently working on a book project that's um, that's up, uh, on the Amazonian borderlands. Um, so it's taken me, um, and it's uh, taking place from the 1920s to the 1970s to sort of tell the stories of 
the indigenous and the Hibarino or river dwelling peoples who have lived um, and who live in the borderlands areas and how they've created um, the borderlands as something that's very different from what the state sees as the borderlands. Um, and in, in that project, I'm, I'm less, um, I, I sort of end with the military dictatorship and the military colony that's established in Tabachinga in 1967. Um, uh, but I'm still very much interested in trying to understand how um, people who had um, only recently suffered um, a genocide during the rubber era um, then in the 1920s and 30s um, started to reshape their communities, their cultures, um, and create a version of what we think of as borderlands and Amazonian borderlands as something very different from what the state-centered approach would tell us. I wish you the very best of luck with that Thanks. scholarship. Thank you. And thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about um, Revolution in the Teja de Sol today and the Cold War in Brazil. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I'm absolutely grateful for the stellar erudition that you provided to us during the course of our dialogue. Thank you for your eloquence and for your thoughtfulness and for your generosity in all the wisdom and knowledge you shared with our listeners during the course of this conversation. Yeah. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in Latin American Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, it has been my glowing honor to be in dialogue with Sarah Sarsinski. We have been discussing her newly published book, Revolution in the, the Terra do Sol, The Cold War in Brazil, published by Stanford University Press 2018. Sarah is Associate Professor of History at Claremont McKenna College. Thank you. I am sincerely humbled to have been in your presence. Thank you, Ari.